0: of your word or that we might be distracted by things or words, but God, you have the power to make our hearts receive your word with faith. And like that parable the souls of so, uh, soils, we want to be the kind of people that the, the Word of God finds good ground, good soil in our hearts and it brings forth a harvest 30, 60, hundredfold. So God do that in our hearts this morning. Thank you for using our brother Bjorn to preach your word, help him and help us to hear and apply to our lives, and leave here more passionate about you and your word than we ever have been in our lives. In your name we pray, amen.
1: Thanks, Corey. So as I was saying before I was overcome emotionally, that date, December 21st, 1997, and then all these thoughts of Christmases, and then thinking about what I wanted to preach today, which is the story of the wise men, the magi, if you know that word. And I thought about how many times have I heard this story, the wise men. So I'm 43 years old. I've easily heard the story 43 times. I don't remember it when I was little, but I know they were saying it. They come up every Christmas, the wise men do. Maybe you'd argue they shouldn't really be in the nativity scene based on when they actually came to visit Jesus. That's debatable. And they don't get top billing like Jesus does and probably not secondary billing like the angels or the shepherds, but it's still a key part of the story of the birth of Christ. And there's something that makes someone nervous when they're preaching something so familiar, right? Like I would guess, and I think it'd be a safe guess, like a a bet worthy guess that everyone in here knows at least the, the outline of the story of the wise men. Now, maybe some of the details we've thrown in traditions and stuff like this um, but we, we kind of know what happened, and there's this weirdness when you're preaching that, because it's kind of like, I was thinking about it like this, it's kind of like when I'm trying to make one of my mom's recipes, and I think about what it, what it can be, and I'm like, can, can, I, can I meet up to my mom's standards with something that everyone knows? So it's funny, my mom, we, we have a Swedish feast in our house, that's why my first name is funny, because I'm of Swedish heritage. And we have rice pudding, and it's not like you would buy it at the grocery store. It's like 600 gajillion times better than that. And we have Swedish meatballs, which aren't perfectly round, like you would buy them at the store. And we have this dessert that I don't know how to pronounce, but Dad, if you're watching the live stream, I'm sure you're pronouncing it right now in terms of how you would say that Swedish thing. And then potato sausage, which is ground up potatoes and meats that you don't talk about, uh, all made together and put into a sausage casing, and it's amazing. But can I prepare this feast when everyone knows how awesome the feast should be? Can I do it? And there's this weird pressure on it. So I was encouraged to look at this sermon that was preached by John Piper at Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota in 1997 because he took something that was so familiar but then went to a depth of it that was so encouraging to me that the the, the depth of the Word of God is just amazing and that when we know everything or think we know everything about it, God always then reveals to us more and more and more as we look into it. So I did what anyone would do, kind of press for time. I just took part of John Piper's outline. I stole his outline, but he stole it from the Scriptures. So I think we're safe in that regards. So we're going to talk about two things this morning. We're going to go through the story of the wise men, if you're into preaching and homiletics, you would say, this is the narrative part of the passage, right? And then we're going to talk about some application, but I'm not directly going to tell you what to do, but I think that by the words I say, God will work through his Holy Spirit and the power of his word that you would know in your heart specifically the things that God is calling you to do with your lives in regards to what the passage says. So the first part I'm going to talk about is the story, and then there's kind of this, this why or so what behind it. More pointedly, why did God bring these things to pass? And that's the part that I took from John Piper. So I want to give him credit for that. I didn't think of the second part of this outline. I changed some words, so it would be better for Summit Church. Uh, But he deserves full credit where credit is due in regards to that second part. So first, we're going to look at the story. We're going to look at it in five parts. Just kind of go through it at a leisurely pace. The first part is that Matthew is telling the story. And the first part is God brings the wise men Jerusalem looking for the promised eternal king. So, verse 1, if you have your Bibles open, this is Matthew chapter 2, starting in verse 1. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king. That's the first part. So this is after Jesus was born. That's why the wise men shouldn't be in the nativity scene. They should be far away, like looking upon the nativity scene. So if you have one in your front yard, set up the nativity scene and then have the wise men kind of, I don't know, as far as you can put them away, looking at what's going on there with the angels and the shepherd and everything that's going on. But this is after Jesus was born in Bethlehem. The shepherds are back in the field. The heavenly host has gone back up to heaven to do the, the bidding of God. Joseph and Mary have actually moved out of the barn and they're in a house now. We know that from the passage. And maybe back then it felt a little like it feels today, right? Christmas is over. You've eaten the dinner. Presents have been unwrapped. The tree looks now naked, sitting in the corner with nothing underneath it. The alarm goes off in the morning. You wake up. You must have coffee to get going. It's just another day. And then, behold, look at what it says in the passage. Behold. Matthew says this all the time. Matthew and Mark. They're saying, behold, behold, behold. And it's, it's like saying, look at this. Look at, something happened, and this is important, and I'm going to tell you about it. Behold, wise men came from the east to Jerusalem, saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. So unbeknownst to anyone this whole time, There were wise men from the east who found out somehow about Jesus' birth because a star in the east that they saw. And we have questions from this. And some people have tried to figure them out. And I would say some people would would go to the point of ruin trying to figure out all these things that we can't really know. Who were the wise men? Where are they from? Did they actually ride camels? Were they dromedary camels or Bactrian camels? Double hump or single hump? How did they know that the star belonged to Jesus? We don't, we don't know these things. Some of them we can take better guesses at than others. But we know this. We know this. The wise men at that time were a big deal. They were a big deal. People knew who they were. They were respected and known across the world for their education and their knowledge. So if you went to a doctor and you saw that that doctor had their degree from Johns Hopkins Medical School, that's, that's what you'd think of with the wise men. Or a, a lawyer from Yale. An entrepreneur from Wharton. a musician from Berkeley or Juilliard. They're respected. And we know that they're not Jewish. They're foreigners from the east. They're from a different country. They're not from the nation of Israel. And they saw this star, and they associated it with the birth of the king of the Jews. And they were so certain that this was true that they get up and travel to set out to find him because they want to worship the king. That's their goal, to worship the king. Now, here's a question. We know from the story that Jesus is in Bethlehem. So why do they stop in Jerusalem? Yes, logically, people would say, okay, this is the king of the Jews. I'm going to go to the the seats or the heart of the capital uh, of the Jewish people to find the king. But that's not where he is. They go to Jerusalem because they don't know that Jesus is, is born in Bethlehem. There was something that they didn't know. And the question that I want us to think about is, as we kind of step through this narrative, I'm not going to try to answer it right now, but I might later. Why did basically, basically God, like, shut off the star? So they didn't know where to go anymore, and they had to go to Jerusalem. Why did God do that? I want you to be thinking about that as we go through the rest of the passage. Why didn't he just send them right to Bethlehem and eliminate that middle step? So let your brain noodle on that, and then we're going to continue. So they come, and they're looking for the king of the Jews. They're asking around, and everyone is troubled by what the wise men say. Everyone is. Look at verse 3. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. So they're asking about the king of the Jews because they saw a sign in the heavens about him. And it, it's kind of weird because the Jews sort of have this king already. Now, he's not really a king. The Roman Senate kind of put him into place, right, Herod. But they come and say, "Where's the King of the Jews?" And no one even thinks of Herod, because they know that what the wise men are looking for is this real, eternal King. And even Herod knows it. Herod is the one who calls him the Christ. He asks the the chief priests and the scribes, "Hey, when does the when? Where's the Christ supposed to come from?" And this troubles them. Everyone's troubled by it. All of Jerusalem. Now, whether this means that, like, literally every person was agitated and freaking out about it, or whether it means this core set of leaders in Israel were troubled by it, we don't know that. We can't be sure. Was literally every person troubled and agitated because of the wise men coming, or was it just representative of the people and the leaders? But we know this. A significant number of people, and especially the leaders, were agitated because of what the wise men said. They don't see it as good news, which is weird for a people who needed a Christ. The Holy Spirit worked long ago through the prophets to declare that a king would come and reign in righteousness forever. The prophet Isaiah said it, and we've heard this. We declared it on Christmas Eve And then the chief priests look at the scriptures, knowing what the prophet Isaiah said, and they said, well, the prophet Micah said he'll come from Bethlehem. The Christ will be born in Bethlehem of Judea. So that's about five miles south of Jerusalem. Now, thinking about being troubled, it's easy to understand why this would trouble Herod, right? Somebody comes and say, hey, the real king is coming. So your, your time is done, clown. It makes sense. Herod was ruthless. He was a dirtbag. We see that later in this account, later after verse 12. He was a stand-in. No one liked him. He tried to build this awesome temple to, like, impress the Jewish people. Didn't matter to them, ultimately. But he's he's done. I, I get why he was troubled, right? But why the rest of the people? Why were the people... Of Jerusalem troubled when they heard about this coming king that had been promised. Let's hold on to that question for a little while, too. Just let it work in your brain. But Herod believes them. Herod believes what the wise men say. He believes it, but he plots against it. Look at verse seven. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem saying, go and search diligently for the child. And when you found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. Herod believes the prophecy of Micah. And Herod even believes what the the wise men are saying, that that the Christ had been born. He understands that God is at work. Herod really understands this. But rather than celebrate that God is at work doing what he said he would do, He plots against God. He's standing in the way of what God is trying to do. He's opposing the the plan of God. So the issue for Herod is not knowledge of the truth, but how he responds to it. The knowledge of the Christ makes not even a dent in his hard heart. He wants more information from the wise men because he's trying to triangulate something. So remember in Star Wars when Luke is going in, and you see the thing on the screen of his X-wing fighter, and it's going like this, and the things are moving around before he's trying to line it up so he can take the shot to destroy the Death Star. That's exactly what Herod is trying to do. He's thinking about, okay, there's this this who part of it, the Christ, and there's this where part of it in terms of Bethlehem, and, and there's this what's going on, and he's trying to line all those things up because what he wants to do is stand in the way of God and try to kill that child. He knows God's will, but he's opposed to the will of God. The knowledge made no difference to Herod. But God finally leads the wise men to worship Jesus. Look at verse 9. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, there's there's the word again. Look, behold, hey, 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 look, 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 look. Behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. So the, the wise men go out after the secret meeting. And the star that had informed him about Jesus, start, it shows up again. And it starts moving to show them where Jesus is. And when they see it, they rejoice exceedingly with great joy. We're going to look at this in a second. But it's amazing. And then they go to the place where the, the star is resting over the house. And there's the child with his mother Mary. And the first thing they do is fall down and worship the child. Fall down and worship. These two words go together. It's this idea of the the wise men made a choice. They deliberately and willingly and consciously made a choice to throw themselves down on the ground in front of Jesus and worship Jesus. And now when we say the word worship, it means many things to us. But when Matthew was writing it down and he used that word that he used, that word meant to bow down before Jesus, to bow down before the child. And then they open up their traveling storehouse. So when they traveled back then, obviously there's no banks, uh, not at least the way we understood them now. They didn't have credit cards or Apple Pay or um, Google Pay or anything like that. Um, they didn't have ATMs they could go to. So when you went on a trip, especially if it was a long way, you had to bring everything with you that you needed for the trip because you couldn't, you couldn't just stop and pick up some more money. So they had all these treasures with them that they would probably barter for. And they, they look at the child who they came to worship and they're like, we're giving these things to you. These things that we brought, maybe they intended to give some, but they said, we are using these things that we brought for our traveling and we're giving them to you, Jesus. Gold and incense or frankincense and myrrh. These are gifts beyond the price range that you give to normal people. They're gifts that you give only to a king. And then God finally leads them safely home. Look at verse 12. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. So Herod is trying to involve the wise men unwittingly in his plot to to oppose the plan of God. But the wise men are warned by God in a dream to go a different way, go home a different way. So two things. I want want you to be safe, wise men, but, but also I want this child that you came to worship to be safe. Don't tell Herod. Where he is, so they return safely home, and Herod, his plot, has failed against God. He cannot oppose God, so that's the story of the wise men. And there's other things over time that different traditions have inserted into there, but we don't know those things to be true for sure. But the things we've gone through—that's that's the account of what happened. So now we think about based on what happened in history and Matthew recording it in a specific way. Why? Or you might think of it as, so what? So what that this happened? And there's five things. There's, there's more than five things. There, there's always more, right, in Scripture. But these five things are key things that God wants us to know, and he used Matthew to tell us but also five key things that God has done. And the first thing that Matthew wants us to know in writing this down is that Jesus is the Christ, God's promised eternal king. So Matthew is writing this down. I picture him like an accountant. We don't, we don't know that. He was a, a tax collector, so he could probably do some basic arithmetic. He could handle himself around a ledger pretty well. And he's presenting facts that demonstrate that Jesus is the Christ. So starting in chapter 2, look at it. Jesus was born in Bethlehem. That's from Micah 5. But Matthew is saying, Jesus was born in Bethlehem. That, that checks one box in terms of the Christ, or what the Jewish people would call the Messiah. Boom. And then you go back into chapter 1. Jesus was born of a virgin. There's another box to check. Isaiah prophesied that as we, we have it recorded in Isaiah chapter 7. Jesus is from the line of David. This is a promise of God in Second Samuel seven, and then Isaiah eleven repeats it in regards to him being from the root of Jesse. And Jesus is from the line of Abraham. God made a promise to Abraham in twelve that all the na- chapter twelve of Genesis that is that all the nations would be blessed because of him. And Matthew is saying this, and I'm paraphrasing, I've, I've checked the facts, every one of the facts that I know about this Messiah, this Christ, I've done the accounting on it. The scriptures say all these things about the Christ, and every one of them, the, these small kind of obscure ones that not a lot of people know, and these big flashy ones, they're all about Jesus. This isn't mythical mumbo jumbo. It's all real. It's, it's all true. Every single piece of it, Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is the promised eternal king. Now, that, that's exciting, but there's something that's even more exciting. If you look in chapter 1, I think it's verse 22 or 23, the angel that goes to Joseph to tell him to, to stay with Mary tells him something very specific. And he says, your name of Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. So there's something that's bigger that, that we didn't even know about the Messiah necessarily you could, you could look back on the scriptures and understand it, but in their midst, I don't know if they knew it. And that was Jesus, the Savior, was coming to save people from their sins. The reason for the coming of the Christ was not to set political boundaries or just conquer. All those, those things happen, but to rescue people from their own inescapable wickedness. And it's not just for one nation, but for people from all nations, tribes, and all languages. This is amazing. Jesus' kingdom is for all who worship him. So earlier I posed the question, why make the wise men stop in Jerusalem, right? Seems like a waste of time. Why not just take them right to Bethlehem? Move the star over, God. Let's get with it. God used the wise men to make an announcement to his own people. The first announcement was, your king has come your king has come. Nobody in Jerusalem seemed to know the great thing that God had done in Jesus being born. They didn't know that until the wise men came and told them about it. That's the first thing, an announcement about the coming king, the birth of the King Jesus. And then to announce that the reign of the king is not limited to people with Jewish lineage. And this was something that was foretold by the prophets. That Christ would be the descendant of Abraham through whom all nations would be blessed. That's a promise of God. That Christ would be a light to all the nations of the world. This is from the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 42. The boundaries for the kingdom of God are not based on geography or your past or family or politics, but on whether or not you will bow to the king of the kingdom who is Jesus Consider who was delivering this message. The wise men were outsiders. They were foreigners. They were on the wrong team, according to the people. They didn't have the right ancestors. They didn't respect Abraham and Moses. They weren't Jewish. And yet God uses these men, these outsiders, these foreigners to proclaim something and carry the announcement of the birth of Christ to the capital city of his kingdom. And that's to show us But the king requires not a certain lineage, but a heart of worship. And if we step back from this idea even, we see it woven throughout all of Scripture. It's not a one-off thing in the wise men. Ultimately, God authors history so that people will know and worship Jesus. God is doing something and has always planned for this that people would know about and worship Jesus. So let's think about the confluence of events, you might say, that brought about the wise men going to Jerusalem and then to Bethlehem. Somehow, some way, and we could guess, but we don't know, the wise men knew enough about the prophets to connect the star they saw with the king of the Jews. How did they know this? We don't know. If you Google it, you will be put to sleep by the number of people guessing at it. But none of them actually know. They're just guessing. They're smarter than I am, but I could say they're still probably wrong. They're guessing. Maybe they knew about the prophecies of Isaiah. There's a chance that they had connected because of the exile of peoples. Maybe they knew about the dreams that Daniel had. Maybe they had read in the, in the book of Numbers somehow the prophecy of another foreign pagan prophet, Balaam, in regards to the star or the scepter. We, we don't know. We can't reach a safe conclusion. But, but we can know this. God wields his power over the universe to point the wise men to Jesus. So there's this cosmic sign. It's completely out of human reach and control. People cannot control the stars. That's why when you go to somewhere where there's not light pollution anymore and you look up at the sky and it's clear, you're astounded at what God has done. And God takes that star and commands it, as only God can do, to move across the sky, to guide these foreigners to Jesus, so they'll go into his presence and fall down and worship him. Was it a star or a comet or whatever? I don't know, but none of us can do that. You and I cannot take things in the sky. And they definitely couldn't do anything back then and say, now you will go here and you will point out that this is the king of the Jews, this is the one to come and worship. Only God can do these things. And this is a reflection of God's plan throughout all the ages. The reason that we're here right now at Summit Church this morning is because of what the wise men represented. God reveals this mystery to us later on after Matthew writes his gospel. The Apostle Paul wrote churches to the the church in Ephesus and the church in Philippi, and he said this, God did things in all wisdom and insight. He made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he set forth in him, regarding his plan of the fullness of the times to bring all things together in Christ, things in the heavens and things on earth. That's from Ephesians. And then Paul wrote to the church in Philippi that because of the humility of what Jesus Christ did, therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow on the earth and under the earth, And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. What God wants, and he will use all his power to show to the world, is that we would worship Jesus Christ. That's what he's pointing to. He'll use people that you interact with. He will use relationships. He will use circumstances. And he will even use dreams and stars that the people he wants to know about Jesus Christ would know. And the people who would reject Jesus Christ would still know, and they would somehow be against Jesus Christ is awful that it is, but everyone would know. That's what God wants to know, that Jesus Christ is Lord. God wants everyone to know that. Man, my words are fast. I'm getting really pumped about this stuff. This is awesome. So consider this, the stars that rise and fall in the sky. Think about the stars that rise and fall in the sky or the nations that rise and fall and make us so troubled as we think about this. As we look at history, natural disasters that occur, natural wonders that we see throughout creation, the hurts of the world and the healings of it by the grace of God, all of it, every single event is under the control of God to accomplish his will. And God's will is this, that he would be glorified by the worship of Jesus Christ. I know we probably had a lot of fruitcake and drinks and stuff, but that's amen worthy, right? Rick Paver, that's right. So you could look at the course of your life, and I do this often, you can look at the course of your life or the path that God has led you on or the path that you have chosen to take, and there can be deep regrets in your life. And there can be great wonders, especially if you were headed on just an awful path, just a path that's so... We we're all dead in our sins and trespasses, but there are things that happen that we look at and we're like, oh, what an awful thing. And then when God rescues us out of those, it's like, Whoa! Whatever the course of your life, there's nothing that's outside of the control of God. And the will of God is the worship of Jesus. Unfortunately, not everyone is with God's plan. Opposition to God's plan comes from hard hearts. We see it all throughout Scripture. Everywhere in the fullness of God's word, pride, the Bible says, arrogance, self-will, haughtiness, stubbornness, self-righteousness, apathy, dead tradition, Hard hearts produce false worship. We asked earlier, why, why were the leaders of Israel especially so troubled by the news of the Christ? It doesn't, it doesn't make any sense. They know all about it, and they know the spot they're in, right? There's this thing that's supposed to be so exciting, and they're troubled and agitated by it, and they even seem against it. If you have your Bible, turn to John 11. And I'm sorry I don't have it up on the screen. Um, I ran out of time, so... But John 11, 47. John chapter 11, verse 47. So this is taking place like 30 or so years after the birth of Christ. We don't know exactly how long, but 30 years after. And Jesus has just done something absolutely amazing, and that is that he brought someone back to life. John 11, 47. And as you can imagine... When someone is brought back to life, people notice that something is different. And the man he brought back to life, it wasn't like, oh, his heart stopped for three seconds. He was dead and rotting in a tomb to the point where the the people didn't want to bring him out because they're like, God, he will stink if we bring him out. He smells. He's rotting. His flesh is decayed. But Jesus brought Lazarus back to life. And then the chief priests and the Pharisees, they gathered at a council, right? They get together to try to figure out what's going on. And they say, what are we to do for this man? They're talking about Jesus there. For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. They should have been excited about the coming king. They should have been excited that the king was here, but they weren't because they didn't understand the point of worship. They didn't want to bow before anything. Those leaders wanted political power. It's it's nauseating. God had promised an eternal kingdom that would never end. That's what the prophet said. This will span to the ends of the earth. It'll go on forever and ever. And it's amazing and awesome. And they were stuck on right now. What do I have right now? What can you do for me right now? They'd grown so accustomed to the way that they were living now. They they saw the coming Messiah as a a threat instead of their Savior. Later on, Jesus said to the same group of people, you search the scriptures because you, you think That in them you have eternal life. And it's they that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. As we look at the leaders of Israel and then Herod, who was obviously a dirtbag and ruthless, they were the same. Their hearts were hard against the will of God. And because of that, their worship was false. For the, the chief priests and the scribes, it was it was apathy, it was dead tradition, it was trying to preserve something that did not need to be preserved. And for Herod it was just outright opposition. But look at look at the wise men. They show us a picture of authentic worship. Look back at verse ten. Of chapter two. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. They rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. I get it, the, the numbers are a little low today in terms of kids. I'm looking around, but, or maybe we've got teachers in here, elementary teachers, but what age or grade do you start learning about like the parts of speech? So, like noun, verb, adverb, adjective, what, third grade? Emily's saying fourth grade, third to fourth grade, advanced second graders may know some of these things. But so we know this. Think about this, kids you are in school or adults. Remember back 500 years ago when you were in school. And, and think about how Matthew breaks things down here. So first of all, he uses a verb. They rejoiced. They rejoiced. And then he uses an adverb to go through it, right? He says, how did they rejoice? And he uses the word exceedingly. So that's an adverb. An adverb modifies a verb. Am I right, Emily? I keep me honest here. Okay, good. That means, so they, they rejoice, which is already like a, a level 10 word. And then exceedingly, like this one goes to 11. It's one louder. Like it is amazing in regards to their, their rejoicing. Exceedingly. And then it... Uh, a noun with great joy and an adjective together. So he's using four parts of speech there to say this is a big deal. They rejoice exceedingly with great joy. That means when we read this, it's not just and they rejoice exceedingly with great joy. This means that a, a big thing is happening and they're celebrating it. How, how do we understand this? I don't, I don't know if we can except to think about maybe a time in our lives when we've been most excited about something. I was also thinking, I don't know, dads, there's dads here, dads, all right. And you ever get a gift for Christmas, and it's obviously like it's obviously made in China, and it's like kind of a cool thing, like it's a I don't know, samurai sword nose hair clipper or something. Like, you know, It's a cool idea, but you can see the craftsmanship behind it is not exactly top-level stuff, right? Made in China. And there's always like an instruction booklet with it. And you can tell that the person who did the instructions first wrote it in their native language and then brought it into English, right? So it'll say like, use the great luck of the superb spinner to trim the hairs. And you're like, okay, I, I get the idea there, but I don't get that fullness in translation. Maybe there's something in regards to this where something is lost in translation. The wise men were delighted, the instruction book would say, with mega joy to the most excellent degree. That's what the little instruction booklet would say about how excited the wise men were. Why were they excited? Because they saw that God was doing something and that he'd made them part of it. So they went in the house What did they do when they went into the house? Look in scriptures, if you got it in front of you on your phone or the Bible. What did they do when they went in the house? And as you're looking at that, think about how we use the word worship now. So I'm challenging an idea that we have right now in our culture, even within our church. They went into the, into the house. Did they raise their hands? No, they did not do that. There's nothing wrong with raising your hands. I believe even the Apostle Paul writes that he desires that all men would lift their hands in, in prayer, right? There's nothing wrong with raising your hands, but the wise men didn't raise their hands in regards to their worship. They also didn't just stand there and look like they're waiting for a table at a restaurant. But they didn't sing or play music. They didn't, like, pull out a lute, or I don't know how to play a lute. Um, they didn't sit down. They didn't look over their shoulder and wonder when it would be over. And they didn't say, "We're going to have the best worship strategy ever." Let's get together, wise men. We're going to figure out how to worship the best. Well, the best strategy it'll have kind of an uh, alliteration to it. They they threw themselves down at the feet of Jesus, his little baby feet, his little baby wrapped up feet. They put their faces on the dirt and they stoned and they worshipped him. They bowed before Jesus. And I imagine the heart of the wise men. Think about the spot they were in. And they're like, God, God told us about you. And we came all this way. And you're here. So, so we're here for you, Jesus. Take all these things. Money, myrrh, gifts, gold, frankincense. All these things that mean a lot to us. And we trade to get stuff that we need. You have it all because all that we need is you, Jesus. Take it all. You have it all. You're worthy. We need nothing but you. We're bowing before you. You, Jesus, you baby, you child there with your mother. You are God. We worship you. As we close out this morning, I think about what the psalmist wrote. What is man that God would be mindful of him? Can can you believe brothers and sisters in Christ can you believe Summit Church can you believe wherever you might be watching a live stream can you believe that God would include you and me to be part of his plan in making Jesus known what's man that God would be mindful of us I can't go a day without messing up saying dumb things I resonate with Peter and James and John I want to have the fire of God like in a holster. And when someone does something wrong, I just pull it out and zap them. I'm impatient. I scoff at people who are made in the image of God. I live my life like a bull in a china shop when there's tender and fragile hearts all around me. That's what I do. And I think about what God declares. This this is unbelievable. What God declares so much that he sent his son for us. God says, I love you. He really says that in scripture. That is not an emotional foo-foo thing. God says, I love you, and I'll give others for you. God says, just as Charles taught in the past weeks, I'm not ashamed to call you my son. Can you believe that? God says, as recorded by the Apostle Paul in Romans 8, I will not hear or accept charges against you, even though the people making them don't even know how right they might be. For through my son, I've declared you righteous. The matter is closed. End of discussion. And I've turned your heart of stone into a heart I can mold into a heart of worship. And when we think about who Jesus is, yes, he came a baby, and it's awesome and the perfect life that he lived, and then his death on the cross, but that he didn't stay dead and he came back to life. Considering all these things, Summit, like the wise men, we can't be a people too proud to fall on our faces in front of him because he's not too proud of a king to then lift us off the ground and empower us and equip us to carry out the mission that he's given us together because of who he is and what he's done. Let's bow our heads and our hearts and pray. Oh, Father in heaven, it's a great story, and it's real, it's all true. Thank you for what you've done, how you've arranged things, how you use things that we have no access to to declare your glories and point us to Jesus. I don't know everyone in here right now. And what if some of them do not know who you are and what you've done? I would pray, Holy Spirit, that you'd work in their hearts now. That having heard the word of God preached as best it could be in this moment. That, they would, that their hearts would be changed and they would be able to understand. And they would turn to Jesus as their king and bow before him. I thank you for our heritage and lineage, how you raise us up. But I thank you that we can all be included based on your love for us, how you change our hearts from hearts of stone, hard-hearted people to soft, moldable hearts that you work that we might worship Jesus together and that you would be glorified in that. God, I pray as we sing this final song, we would get the tenderness and sweetness of these magi, these wise men going before this little child who's the king of the world who will live forever and ever and who will be exalted. Then our hearts would stir up a, a knowledge and understanding of just this great love you have for us. But then I pray that you would turn our hearts towards the heavens and the future and the fact that our worship of you will be as it has always, always should have been at some point when you come back for us. I pray that we would we would stand in both places at one time, living in the present, recognizing the past, but longing for the future when you come back. Do this for your glory, Heavenly Father. And we pray in the name of your Son, Jesus, your eternal promised King.
0: Amen. Let's stand up together before we leave this place. We have an opportunity. We say this often but perhaps more tender than normal even to to follow suit of what we heard and to apply it to our lives, to bring an offering to the King of Kings, to bow our hearts, to reflect and to take joy that he's here.
2: Over the skies of Bethlehem appeared a star while angels sang to lowly shepherds Three wise men seeking truth They traveled from afar Hoping to find the child from heaven Falling on their knees They bound before the home sub
0: someone that you'd expect who's been spending tons of time in god's word his heart was so tender and i don't know if he would want me to say this but i know that the the frustration and the burden that he had was that somehow we would just listen to this message and say oh that was nice and then go find some lunch that somehow we would become so accustomed just being like yeah we talk about worship all the time We're supposed to worship in spirit and truth and that's so awesome and I just love my church and now I'm gonna go spend the rest of my week thinking about myself and other people. And There's something about being in God's presence that marks us and changes us. And we as a church, as leaders, we have no power to do that. In a person's life, but we can create an opportunity and then we can pray our guts out during the week to say, God, will you please reach through the clutter in the hearts of all and the clutter in all of our hearts and minds? And would you do something that would ruin us for anything less than serving you? And I know in a room like this, there's very likely people, maybe you've just grown up in the church and you've heard this so many times, it's just so familiar and you're like, yeah, I agree, that's true, I checked that box off. Or maybe some of you are just so hurting in the season that it's so hard to hear these words and to consider what they mean. Maybe you've just set your heart against them and they said, no, I don't, I'm, not, I'm only here out of obligation for somebody. That's okay, but God is working in the hearts of people and he'll work in your heart too. And I would just say this morning, if these words are anything but precious and convicting, that you would just take an opportunity, even right now, to pray to God and say, God, do something in my heart to cause me to love this. Do something in my heart to understand this. Do something in my heart that would cause me to just not walk out of here and forget this call to worship because this is the greatest thing that God has created us for. It wasn't to make more money. It wasn't to be the smartest guy at your job. It wasn't to raise perfect little kids. It was to live a life bowing our hearts continually and taking great advantage of the glory of being able to come to the Lord with your mess and saying, I jacked everything up again, but you're here and your mercies are new every day. And so I stand in reverence before you because you're a holy God who revealed yourself through centuries. You kept all of your promises. You did everything in time, just like the prophets said. And I know that the one thing that you want from me is to love you. And so this morning, Let's just be honest with ourselves. We're incapable of manufacturing that kind of love. It has to be a spiritual thing that God does in our hearts. But I've also learned this too. Even when I don't feel it, we sing, I know you're working. Well, even when I don't feel it, I worship. And then God does something supernaturally in my heart and causes me to love the things that he loves and hate the things that he hates. It causes me to take my mind off my myself and to put it on him and others. So I wonder if we could do this just one more time before I say you are loved and you walk out of here and have lunch. Can we just sing in a tender moment, I bring an offering of worship to my King. And if you're one of those people that's struggling to even believe you can do it, really quick, just say, God, help me so that when I sing this song, I mean it.
2: I bring an offering of worship to my King. One on earth deserves the praises that I sing. Jesus, may you receive the honor that you're due. Oh Lord, I bring an offering to you. One more time. do in my life, Lord, do it, oh Lord,
0: Lord I bring offering to you, Lord, we've worshiped, we've heard your word, now we need you throughout this week to stir in our hearts, and restore to us the joy of our salvation, renew a right spirit in us, we need you to cause our hearts to love the right things and to reject the wrong things. We need the precious conviction of your Holy Spirit to show us when we're getting off, we're focusing on the wrong things and when our worship has been stolen by greed or pride or other things that our human hearts love to revert back to. But this we know your spirit is with us and you're able to keep us. You're able to change us. And so that's our heart, God, that we would continually this week and in the years to come, continue to bow our hearts, continue to be willing to be undignified, continuing to love the things that you love to regularly bow our hearts, confess our sins, and then live in the joy of knowing that we are yours and that you accept us and that you receive us. And that if God be for us, who can be against us? Lord, let us live forever in that joy until the day that we see you face to face. In the precious name of your Son, our Savior, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, Prince of peace, almighty God, we say amen. Amen. Summit Church, we love you so much. You are loved.